0: For rocking with us, check it, check it, Julie, kick off the show.
1: Welcome to Crazy and the King. Hey, my friend.
0: Tell you something, end of the year, you know I'm already feeling really good. Holiday season is among us, but we got some things that we need to talk about. And one of the things that we had to do is we had to get some incredible voices on to end the year. So even though Julie and I are not here live we're still giving you some of that heat. Some stuff happened in 2020. What's this, 2021? Yeah.
1: Still, Some stuff yes. happened.
0: I mean, it, well, you said still. Look at you. <laughs> I know that was that was a little soft shade right there. You threw a little soft shade. I got it. I caught that though. So I know it, it, if we were to think about this year, what's probably one thing work-related that just it sits with you and maybe even it just uh, annoys you? What's the one thing from 2021?
1: I I would say that we are still holding steady, right? Holding steady is not good enough anymore. I, I thought 2020 and 2021 was going to change us, and uh, if anything, it's not annoyed me. It has refocused me into what has to happen into 2022 and beyond because it's it's really time to move beyond sort of the uh, the performative bullshit, and we should know that by now.
0: But but let me make sure I understand when you say we're holding steady, I I think what you're suggesting, Jay, is that we haven't made enough movement in areas that matter. Areas like compensation, areas like inclusion, areas like recognizing people with disabilities, areas around being more civil, more empathetic. Is that what we're saying? Focusing more on shareholders and not stakeholders. We're just kind of going through the routine. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. I feel like we are still focused too much on access and not enough on equity. And until we start transforming that conversation into equity, we're just going to hold where we are. I'm, I'm glad I'm, we're not taking some steps back. Like I felt like we were, but steady's not where I want to be either.
0: Yeah. I, I think back to a, a conversation that I had in October. Well, it wasn't a conversation I had, but it was a conversation that I was privy to listen to Jason. Um, and uh, Jess Von Bank on their Now of Work crowdcast. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they focused on, they focused on um, acronyms and they focused on why HR is not performing at a high high level. And one of the comments that kept showing up in the thread was that people were relying on technology, thinking that technology could change the outcome in ways that we as people couldn't change the outcome, which is why I'm so glad that we have John Graham on today so that we can kind of talk about the people in the solution. And hopefully this would be one of those conversations that allows us to move forward at more of an accelerated rate. Make
1: sense? Absolutely. And I can tell you that we've both been waiting and excited to have John on the show. I'm a big fan and uh, have devoured his book called Plantation Theory. So I say we- just get right to it and hop to yeah. our break and uh, welcome our guest.
0: Yeah, I'm jealous because uh, I don't even have the book yet.
1: I'm not going to tell you I have a signed copy, but I do.
0: <laughs>
1: that's, that's a problem, but,
0: but that's how it is. I, I don't have a copy. I'm going to make sure we get a copy. Let's listen to this uh, ad break and then let's get into our conversation with John. How much do you understand the future of finance? Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcast and now available on YouTube.
1: All right. So, welcome to Crazy and the King, Mr. John Graham. How are you today?
0: Hey,
2: Julie, I'm great.
0: How are you? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're gonna start all of that over. We're gonna like, we gonna get that. We, we gotta have that holiday festive, you know, because again, <laughs> folks been tired of listening to podcasts, folks been watching Zoom meetings and video, and yeah. we gotta bring them into our environment. Let's give them some more of that energy. So, Jay, hit them again with that. Joy. No,
1: no, no. I, about, I defer to of, you, about, my friend. Uh, Right okay, hit. cool,
0: cool, cool. All right, so look. So we've been waiting for this conversation. Joe, Jay told you before the break that she's already began to devour the book Plantation Therapy. Uh, it's Plantation Theory, right? Theory, theory, not therapy. It probably should be therapy. And actually, that, you know what? That's a great way for us to go into it. Fuck up the name of his book. <laughs> uh, then allow him to come in and fix it. So welcome yeah. to Crazy in the King, Mr. John Graham. Hey, hey. Thank you That's so what I'm talking about. Me. Thank you so there much you for having go. me. I'm just there as
2: excited go. to be here. Uh, yeah. You, you, you got to forgive me. I'm three eggnogs deep. So, you know, this, okay. is, this is chill <laughs> vibe. You know? uh, I love um, that. I love that. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Plantation Theory, the Black Professional Struggle Between Freedom and Security. Uh, available everywhere books are out. But yes, it's, uh, it's certainly a 150-page uh, easy read that is not an easy read uh, or anybody who has read it uh, thus far knows that it, it it certainly pushes people to ask better questions. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna make
0: sure I'm gonna make sure I not, not just one or two copies. I'm actually going to make sure I cop five copies and I'm gonna see if we can put them in the hands of some incredible Kings and Queens, uh, in the month of December, the title, that subtitle, that freedom and that,
2: Security, yeah, yeah. That freedom yeah. and
0: security is like a pause right there for me. But before I even jump into that, because I'm I'm ready to go at 100 miles an hour. John Graham, VP yeah. of Employer Brand, Culture and Diversity at Shaker Recruitment Marketing. He again right. is the author of Plantation Theory. He identifies um, as he, him, black man, husband, father, spiritualist, creative. Fraternal brother, love the dimensions that that uh that spiritualist piece, Jay. It, it might prevent him from using any uh inflammatory language, but but mm. we'll see what happens. All right.
2: No, no, no. I'm <laughs> I'm one with the universe of language, universal language of all, indeed. Yes.
1: Excellent. So we well, then,
0: then, like then there we the go. Across the board, yes. Then, yes, then there bro. we go. There we go. <laughs> Jay, take it away. What do we got?
1: Yeah. So, I I think I I first want to know why. Plantation theory. Introduce us to to the book yeah. and the the motivation <clears throat> behind your your writing.
2: Absolutely. So I'm I'm a historian by background. Uh, I was an African studies major, which means I was steeped in all things African culture, pre transatlantic slave trade, all the way up to uh, let's say 1964 Civil Rights Act. That being the case, coming out of. Uh, you know, undergrad, going into corporate, um I had a very deep sense of who I was and who you know and where I was entering uh, from a corporate perspective, That being the case, trying to weave in culture into everything that I did, uh, whether it was early days in customer service all the way up to you know leading global employer brand uh, recruitment marketing functions for major fortune fifty pharma and biotech companies. I wanted to ensure that the culture was properly represented and articulated um, and respected. Right? And so 2020 became the year of conversations that were never had openly in corporate settings um, as catalyst uh, catalyzed by uh, George Floyd's murder. And so uh, what I saw was a lot of people who historically had not talked about these issues, hearing things for the first time. Uh, A lot of people who had not been able to express the realities of their lived experience being openly called to do so on broad stages. Um, And there was still a disconnect because people were looking at the what and wanting to jump into the how, but nobody was talking about the why. And so I felt that was the opportunity to, to, to put a complete thought together in plantation theory. So...
0: Yeah, you talk about, you know, 2020 being the year of conversation. And you mentioned a moment ago, you knew who you were. It reminds me, John, of a, a, an opening that I gave to a presentation back in 2014. It's mm-hmm. powerful for us to know who we are. What does that That's really right. mean to you? And why is that important? And I want to be very, very specific. Why mm-hmm. is that important to you as a Black man? To know who you are. Well, I think identity
2: helps, uh, helps you not only present yourself to the world, but it helps you ground yourself when you're presented with things that aren't in alignment. Right? And so when you know who you are, you'll know what you're willing to accept and what you're not. Uh, and be very clear on what alterations or conformity or contortions you're willing to make to achieve a certain outcome and uh and i think being grounded in your not only your history but um you know but strength and confidence in your identity uh is hugely important especially as uh, as a black man in america but as a black professional in corporate america
1: and i i think it's interesting kind of how you got to that point in your life. And and this is my takeaway from the book, right? You grew up in a, in an affluent, mostly white neighborhood, school kind of life. And you decided to go to an HBCU for college and then what that changed in you. So kind of talk to us about your lived experience and the differences of being in the majority. And, and you do that it's just so beautifully in the book.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean... Uh, my parents did well. Um, my, my father was in corporate um, uh, at Ford Motor Company and sales and marketing. <clears throat> and uh, every time he got a promotion, it meant a new city. And so, you know, having to adjust and adapt, I'm an only child. So you make friends fast, You you, you get used to being in social circles, and then going and establishing new relationships and so forth. But everywhere we would move, the consistent theme was I was one of a handful of black students in these schools. And so, you know, I can remember as far back as, you know, uh, second grade and and fifth grade and getting into fights and, you know, people wanting to touch my hair and, you know, calling me the N word and, you know, all of these things, because, you know, first of all, kids are brutal, but, but there's, uh, when you are one of only a few that cultural exposure, right. And then you have sort of a, a uh, homogenous uh, community that isn't used to people that aren't of uh, their cultures—it uh, creates a lot of tensions um, that I don't think you know. Kids, number one, know how to deal with, and most uh, most parents don't have those conversations with their children either outside of black communities. So it's you know that shaping my my early childhood. Um, I saw the. Uh, the richness of the experiences that my parents had at Lincoln University, um, you know, where they met, where several family members had had, had attended and, and graduated from as well, and my first step onto that campus at twelve years old, and with my father, just really instilled the sense of pride, uh, knowing the history on those uh, on those sacred grounds or those hallowed grounds, as it were, the you know the Thurgood Marshalls, the Langston Hughes, the Kwame and the you know the tours, the the people who had stepped on those grounds before me was was massively impactful in making that decision to go to an HBCU. But during my time there, coming from predominantly suburban, um, you know, environments, it really gave me the, the 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 first experience of being in the majority, right? Not having to. Uh, to, to worry about my performance in speaking for my entire race, right? But my individual performance was my own and my success was expected, right? That was the bare minimum expectation that you'd be excellent. Um, And so that is an experience that gives you a very different sense of who you are in context to America if you've never lived it. Right. Mm. Mm.
0: You know, uh, you just said something, which is, f- first of all, you you drop names that in the three years that Julie and I have been recording have never been uttered on this platform. So mm. I appreciate your sharing those names for our listeners. And my hope is that they pull them down from the the, uh, the listening experience and that they spend some time educating themselves on who those individuals are. Sure, Thurgood Marshall may ring true and familiar, but Kwame mm. Nkrumah, that's mm-hmm, a new absolutely. one. That's a different one for them. and I hope that that they they do that. But I want to go back to something that you said. you used the word excellence. and and prior to that, you talked about alignment and you talked about weaving yourself and contorting yourself. Mm-hmm. I want to go to excellence and this is might this might put you on the spot. It might challenge you for a moment, but okay. but when you talk about that whole being able to bear the weight of your individual performance, Mm. Versus having to speak for the audience of black and brown people or black men.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Aren't you tired of black excellence? Here's what I mean. Uh, Yes. Yeah. That, that phrase, Julian, this is something that I've never said on the show before, but I had to pause because there was a period where I would put a post up on social media And I put hashtag black excellence and I ran across someone. I can't remember who it is, but the person challenged me, not personally, but their tweet challenged me like, I'm tired of being excellent. I just want to be not that I want to be lazy. I just don't want to have to be excellent. What do you say to that? So I'm in the
2: same camp. Uh, You know, I've had very deep discussions around the problem of excellence and asking questions of why is excellence coded into us, but mediocrity is coded into others. And so when you start to look at, you know, who benefits, and this brings it back full circle to plantation theory, excellence was a requirement because you had no choice, right? You had to perform at high outputs of productivity uh, against your own, um, uh, health issues, challenges, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, circumstances didn't matter. You were you were doing what you were doing from can't see to can't see, as they say. And so that's generationally coded. And so this notion of being excellent, to always be working twice as hard for half the recognition, um, to be the best dressed, to be the best performer, and still not meet the mark is something I have a challenge with when it's mediocrity that seems to get rewarded and elevated. So yes, I'm with you. Excellence should not be the standard because it sets an impossible pace, an unsustainable pace that ultimately we've, we've had to endure for centuries.
0: And not that John needs any explanation, but again, I just want our listeners to know we're not suggesting in any way that we are afraid of that hard work. We're not suggesting in any way that we are I'm asking you once again to lower the bar that we want to that we want to arrive at a slower pace of good we just really want you to recognize that we want a fair expectation across the board that that's what we want
2: that's right yeah and fair defined as you know um, the same expectation that you would have of yourself uh rather than the, the, you know, there's, there's a, a very powerful medium in language uh, that requires us to examine the racial realities in which we speak, right? And so fairness uh, is one of those words, but equality and equity, all of those things have different meanings depending on the racial frame we're talking from. Uh, so I, I appreciate that call out for sure. And, and look, I mean, we've addressed media uh, medi- meritocracy and the myth of meritocracy in this conversation around excellence in the sense that, you know, no, we're not asking to be, you know, given a pass and, you know, uh, sidestep hard work. But if we're looking at meritocracy and its promise in theory, then it it suggests that those who have worked the hardest reap the most rewards. When in historical view, who's worked harder than Black folks in America? And that's, That's a question and a conversation that's uncomfortable, but it's real. And that's why that's why, you know, as we talk about excellence, as we talk about fairness and expectation, we also have to be uh, we have to recognize that there's a historical inequity. All
0: right. So, uh, you know, they say that um, as men, we can tap into our feminine side. Oh, I'm going to tap into I'm going to tap into my feminine side for just a second. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir. Son, when you said it, I mean, just just the whole thought of, you know, it really is what, and and I struggle with how to put it in words, you know, Mm. and I haven't really been able to put it in words, Jay, from the stage like I wanted to, but the question, he just hit it. Like, you can't tell me. That black and brown people, that people with disabilities, you can't tell me that more people than Tim Cook in the LGBTQ community, you can't tell me that we haven't worked hard. Like, I just find it hard to believe that a group of people think less of us with all that we have displayed across industry, coast to coast, border to border. For centuries. And I've struggled to put that in words, but I just so appreciate your succinctly saying, but who's worked harder? But who's worked harder? Jay? Mm.
1: So the plantation theory, I understand because I've read the book. And I, I think the subtitle tells us a lot. And we've had, I think, very important foundational conversation right now tell Mm -hmm. me how plantation theory manifests itself um and and i would say from a black perspective but even from a white perspective um and and how then that creates this friction for lack of a better word right how does it keep us from getting to that next place
2: now, that's a, a phenomenal question. Uh, I will do my best to answer it um, with the following. Um, if, you, if you look at the model of work in this country historically, we largely haven't changed much. Right? And what I, what I mean by that is the, con- the concept of, of business is still low-cost labor, high productivity, and profitability. If we just keep that as the premise. So when you look at plantation theory, okay, you're coming from a no cost labor into a transition. And and so, you know, I I say in the book, you know, in 1866, you had four and a half million uh, free black folks with no support system, no education, no access, uh, you know, and and no means of sustaining uh, a living. And oh, by the way, now that you're competing with uh, an influx of immigrants, uh, who have been brought in to replace the the low-cost labor from Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and so forth, South America, Central America. And so now you have a million plus uh, of these free black folks die within the first year of being uh, you know released from bondage because you know illness uh, disease, uh, famine neglect, right the remainder and, and I, I want to stop
1: you right there for just a second. that stat. I underlined, I circled, I did not know. And I think that's important. A million freed black slaves died after they were sent off with nothing out to make their own way. I'm sorry, please go ahead.
2: No, no, it's a a great call out. And so when you look at the remainder, right, you had a very small subset that go on to lead independent lives, set up shop, whatever, and, and, and live free lives. The majority. Went back to plantations as sharecroppers, which set up the next 100 years of what we know as the peonage systems, Jim Crow, and so forth. Where, where that plays into today, right? The only thing that separates us is one generation from not being full citizens, right? And I'm talking about black folks. So 1964, Civil Rights Act, Title VII, and so forth. My parents were, were, were in grade school when they switched from a Jim Crow era to not jim crow era one generation so we still work with people who were of age in a time where we weren't seen as full human beings now you think about how that plays out so how does that play out in performance reviews uh you know what you you, you did you did excellent this year but let's wait till next year see how it goes right promotion promotions always out of reach no matter the credential or the uh, the output. Uh, when you look at the uh, re- recruitment piece, uh, you know what? Uh, we're, we decided not to move forward with you, even though your your resume looks excellent and all of these credentials. But you don't know why. Um, there's a, there's a whole host of things that the, the microaggressiveness, the assumption of dominant culture assimilation. Right? You're coming into a culture, but bring your whole self to work, but not really your whole self to work. These are the underlying things that you know we don't address because we assume since six, 1964, now there's this expectation of fairness. Fairness. Well, that expectation doesn't necessarily play out in reality. And who's defining fair? So if we look at the executive levels of most companies, you would see that that expectation doesn't play out. When you look at the uh, promotion rates of black talent or marginalized talent, that expectation doesn't play out. And when you look at attrition rates right of of marginalized talent, these expectations don't play out. so these is how these are how plantation theories right the the expectation of give us your all and we might we might give you some relief. We may give you some acknowledgement right these these underlying notions of um Uh, You know, work hard, keep your head down. Uh, We'll we'll tap you. They they just still play
0: out today. Yeah, you know what? You just dropped uh, that historical reference, and for a lot of individuals, connecting it back to 1866 is something that is a concept beyond them. Like they've never even Mm -hmm. given that consideration. And you did it in a way where people can easily make reference to it. Julie, she circled it. She highlighted it. She underlined it. I often talk about the book "The Color of Law." and In reading such, it will change a person's relationship with that familiar phrase of "pull yourself up from your bootstraps." I want to put a pin in the conversation. Uh, Let's let's have a part two. Uh, So so sit there real quick. We're going to button up this episode, and and then we'll come back and we'll we'll continue to record because. I don't want to rush where you are right now. Uh, You've dropped some points, and I want us to be able to pick up on them. So real quick, let's make sure that we uh, focus on this. So so stick with us, John. Um, Our Her Voice segment typically is around women that are making moves. And for those of you who have been rocking with Crazy and the King ever since we um, introduced the segment, I want to say, Julie, back in July of this year, Uh, It's been something that has resonated well with our listeners. Well, our Her Voice segment for the month of December is going to be around women who have made moves in 2021. And the first one that we want to highlight is Amanda Gorman, who uh, also made history as the youngest inaugural uh, poet. So she was phenomenal. And I know you remember that, right, Jay?
1: Oh, yes. Loved it. Listened to it many times. Also, Sarah McBride who was sworn in as the first openly transgender state senator.
0: Yeah, and Chloe Zhao became the first Asian woman to win a Golden Globe for the best director. So we appreciate the the work that women have done. And and I thought it was extremely important. Julie thinks it's extremely important that we continue to highlight the work of women. They have had a tough year to say the least. And it's our small way of saying, we wanna make sure we keep the focus on how do we undergird, support, encourage, inspire, and just reward women in the way that they should be rewarded. Quick mentions, Julie.
1: Uh, Yep, so John's book, uh, plantationtheory.com, pick up a copy and uh, devour it like I have
0: or several copies, pick up several copies, yeah, and another book alert uh, dropping in in the fall of 2023, I know it's more than 18 months from now, but you have to find this young lady on Twitter, follow her, and put a note on your calendar to grab her book Uh, her name is Ida uh, Marion Davis, you can find her on Twitter at Ida A-I-D-A-M-A-R-I-A-M Ida Marion Um, She is the founder and CEO of Decolonized Design. So fitting and so complimentary to the conversation that we are having today. Uh, But her book, Decolonizing Design, Reclaiming Our Sacred Personhood and Creating New Worlds is coming out in the fall of 2023. And this is probably a good time for us to say, stick with us. Do your best to create workplaces that matter. Be a better human. Um, Share the pod with your digital, your social tribes. Julie and I want to grow in 2022. So we're going to keep giving you all that we have. But for now, Jay and I are
1: ghosts. See ya.